Over the past couple weeks, headlines have talked a lot about how reduced greenhouse gas emissions are a big unintended consequence of the measures that we're taking to fight the COVID-19 pandemic. We're halting industrial activity, we're flying less, we're driving less, and the results are visible in the natural world. If it wasn't for all the suffering and death caused by the pandemic, it would seem like this would be a climate activist's dream. It's really tempting to see emissions reductions as a kind of silver lining in a time like this. But as people like the Wall Street Journal are reporting, past economic slowdowns have also caused reductions in emissions. The thing is, when we return to normal after those economic slowdowns, those emissions bump right back up to where they were. The reductions are temporary. Ten years from now, a few months of reduced emissions is not going to look like very much in the face of runaway climate change. We can't return to business as usual after this is over. This pandemic offers us something else if we can look a little bit deeper. We have the chance right now for a big mindset shift in our society and our culture. You're listening to Groundwork. I'm Jeff Wagner. In each episode, We explore a different thread connecting climate change to culture. This week on our show, we explore liminality. Anthropologists who study transitions often discuss the idea of liminality, or liminal space. A liminal space is the ambiguous space that's created between two ways of being or two ways of seeing the world. It's what happens when you leave one culture or leave one frame of reference, and you don't really enter it fully into another. We know that liminal spaces hold special power. They're like moments of time that are outside of our normal frame of reference, the time we normally operate in. They're spaces where ordinary and familiar things, the structures that root us in our everyday lives, start to dissolve a little bit. Many societies create liminal spaces intentionally to facilitate transitions, usually for young people as they're going through some kind of rite of passage. Um, You might see them also in pilgrimages or monastic living or initiation ceremonies. In the secular modern United States, we also create liminal spaces. We send young people into the wilderness. We go on a retreat. There are long-term volunteer placements. We might travel to a foreign country. Whatever it is, however we create this liminal space, we always expect people to return carrying some kind of special wisdom. As an educator on study abroad courses, I get to watch students as they enter into a liminal space. They step out of their home culture and... They're learning to function in a community and a culture that's different from their own. Over time, their routines, their demeanors, their baseline assumptions about the world begin to align more with the local peoples. Researchers have studied students as they return from immersive experiences in foreign cultures, sometimes up to 10 years afterwards. And what they find is that even after a decade, The process of reintegrating after being in a liminal space never really stops. People are always wrestling with the beliefs and the habits and the ways of relating to the world that came from that liminal space. Things are never quite the same. This moment in history is a liminal space, 
liminality doesn't give us answers. Instead, it kind of illuminates that there are choices where there didn't really seem to be any before. We have the chance to choose how we want to live in the future. This moment is important for the natural world, not because we've paused emissions for a few weeks. It's really important because we've left behind what we considered to be normal. And right now we're not just thinking about alternatives, but we're living them. Our culture itself is being thrown into question, and we're doing it through a very powerful method that cultures use when they want to facilitate transitions. Culture is a really hard thing to identify, even under normal circumstances, unless someone has lived outside of their home culture, their home context. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is that they're talking about when they refer to their home culture. Growing up in a culture is like being a fish growing up in water. Right now, we're like a bunch of fishes out of water, and we're looking back at our culture, the water from which we just emerged. A few months ago, it would be really hard to imagine some of the things that have happened recently. We've shut down most commercial air travel. Our government has started paying universal basic income and is talking about paying more. Entire cities have shut down, and most of the world's population in the past couple weeks have not traveled within a few miles of where they live. We're beginning to loosen our membership in a system of life that was characterized by this tremendous crescendo of busyness and spending. This liminal space is a really extraordinary opportunity, not just to look deeply at our culture, but also to look at the way that our culture approaches problems. I want to talk specifically about climate change. That's what this podcast is about. With climate change, we're stuck in a kind of paradox, and we've been stuck in it for a long time. We need large-scale policy shift, but most of those policies also have to come with shifts in lifestyles that make those policies possible. Right now, the general public in this country in the U.S., is unprepared to implement a lot of those cultural shifts because it would mean having to shift the way we live. Without a big commitment as a society towards creating a new sustainable culture, we're really just asking how we can feel environmentally friendly while maintaining our affluent way of life. So our approach to climate change is an approach that's not really open to all solutions. We're only open to solutions that also prop up the systems that are familiar and comfortable to us. That's why we like solutions like electric cars. They let us feel good, but they don't challenge our membership in the system that created climate change in the first place. Right now, that system that created climate change is on pause. This liminal space is a space that can help expand our ideas of what is possible and it can help to break us out of really entrenched ways of thinking about climate change. When I give public talks about culture and climate change, people almost always ask me the same question. They ask, what can I do in my own life to address climate change? I don't like this question because people are usually just looking for a quick fix. They want a silver bullet that they can put into their life so that they don't have to think about climate change anymore. Really, that question is trying to sidestep the tension that exists around a central truth that we don't want to acknowledge, 
our culture causes climate change. In a way, those people are asking how they can avoid stepping into a liminal space, how they can avoid stepping into uncertainty and asking what are new ways in which we can live. I always answer that question with a reminder. I like to remind people that as individuals, we constantly take part in creating the cultural landscape that we live in. Our current cultural landscape is inhospitable to many climate change solutions, including large-scale climate policy. They're really outside of what we define as allowable and normal. We need a culture that's open to more than just new technologies. After all, many of those technologies serve to reinforce cultural causes of climate change, like our individualism, fast pace of life, our consumerism, and our fragmented communities. We need to be accepting of lifestyles that are localized and focused on non-material goals. We need to remember how to be happy with simpler lives and to be happy with what we have. Shifting culture is not an easy thing to do, but we need a new cultural landscape where a sustainable future can take root and take hold. When this pandemic is over, there's going to be a big rush to return to our former conceptions of normal, to get all the systems back up and running again. But there's also a chance that in this moment, we might allow ourselves to lean more into the liminal space that we've created and use it to help transform our culture and create something that's worth living in once this is all over. This week on our show, we have two segments exploring liminality. Writer and producer Anna G. Stevens brings us a story of a community in the Mekong River Basin in Southeast Asia wrestling with social and environmental change. But first, I wanted to catch up with somebody who experiences liminality on a daily basis in their work. I got in touch with Jessica Fuller. She's a program supervisor and an instructor at Knowles, a wilderness school that takes students out into some of the biggest wild spaces that the U.S. has to offer. She also trains new instructors and works with them the days before expeditions to prepare teams to go out into the wilderness. While there is a lot of technical skill and expertise involved in fielding 30-day expeditions, I talked with Jessica today about the mental and social aspects of those expeditions. I wanted to hear from her what happens to her students and to herself as they immerse themselves in wild spaces. She described the excitement and nervousness of a group of total strangers meeting each other, and then within 24 hours loading up onto a bus and driving off towards the mountains. Then this vehicle drives away, and it's often this pretty cool moment of suddenly sort of looking around. Not everyone is conscious of it. Like, okay, this is it. These are our 10 or 12 people that we've got. These are all the things that we need and we're gonna start walking. You might be in the mountains of Wyoming on a backpacking trip and wake up as the sun is rising, birds are chirping, and you're overlooking a lake at the bottom of this big mountain pass that you know that the next day's, or that coming day's move is gonna be where you're going. 
doing a sea kayaking course in Mexico on the Sea of Cortez, it may involve waking up on the beach at 4 a.m. in the pitch black with the stars, pinpricks of light uh, on top of you and going out to the ocean's edge to look at the water and see if we're ready to move for today, like looking at the weather and the sea state and making a plan to move there. And so there can be all sorts of beginnings to the days. And the days unfold and usually involve some sort of packing everything up. And whether it's going into a sailboat or a sea kayak um, or into a backpack, getting everything all set and ready, everyone fed, and then we move for the day. And it can unfold in lots of different ways. I often say when students are like, great, it's going to be the straightforward day. We're just going three miles. I'm like, oh my gosh, everybody grab, find themselves a hat and hold on to it. Cause here we go. <laughs> uh, it's like often those days are like somebody gets turned around or this quote unquote trail is no longer there as planned. And you know, uh, it takes much longer than thought. And the, the frustration rises and like, I thought it was just going to be an easy day. Um, so yeah, then it's, it's moving somewhere else. And then in that moving through that time and space is where uh, a lot of the learning and communication and pushing through happens. So I, I do think the days are stripped down to these taking care of these basic needs of like, okay, do we have enough water? Everybody's eating. Um, are we taking good care of each other? We're moving our bodies, like breathing air. Like, great. Um, all these these things are happening. Um, but it does require this movement. Um, people often say this, like, oh, it's the journey, not the destination. And sometimes on hard days, I'm like, you know what? It is the destination. Like, I love getting to the end and eating a bunch of snacks and taking off my hiking boots that have been on my feet for eight hours. Like, can't we just get there and do that part? But it's just not the same. You can't drive to a trailhead, get out of your car and sit there in the parking lot and stuff your face with um, like a, a bar of chocolate you've been saving and um, sit there and laugh in the same way. You'd be like, oh, okay, we're just sitting here in a parking lot eating this. But you go on like this multi-day journey and that joy of like, oh, we did it. We made it. And this relief of getting there. And it took the journey to get to that destination that allowed you to rejoice in it, to see the change um, to see the growth. Um, and that destination feeling doesn't always come when you expect it or hope it does or wish it would. Um, but it is a very cool feeling. And when it happens, I often am like, oh yeah, this is why I do what I do. I think when, when people describe extended experiences in the wilderness, there's a kind of paradox that you hear where at one point people seem to be very in touch with sort of transcendent aspects of life. People feel that there's some sort of spiritual connection with the natural world, that their relationship with the natural world uh, feels more vibrant. You hear that people's relationships with their peers feels more vibrant. Their relationship with themselves changes and with their ideas of what they want to do with their lives. It seems like 
things come into sharp focus. And so it has this positive connotation to it. At the same time, there's a lot of hardship. But yeah, I I guess where this question is going is um, I want to ask about that sort of richness of experience and what role you think that plays in this liminality, the liminal space that's created in the wilderness. Oh, yeah. Vibrancy is such a good word for it. That you're feeling more. I always would describe it as like, I feel like my emotional muscles were being stretched and feeling these superlatives of different emotions. And it doesn't mean I always felt wonderful all the time. That Yes, there were moments that I'm like, I um, was looking out at this beautiful view and like, enjoying the people here and the, the stars were starting to come out. And it was just beautiful. And you're like, oh, I have never felt so alive and connected to what is going on. But I also had moments where I was like, I have never felt so tired. I have never felt so frustrated. And by pushing out into those more superlative pieces, I think it's like like your color spectrum of life increases. And I think that's where that vibrancy comes in. Do you think that people are feeling anything akin to that in our current pandemic? Hmm. I don't know if they are right now. I feel like there's a little bit of an anxiousness of, can I just go back to what we had before? Because that quote unquote worked. Um, And I think I can see that in students and even myself often at the beginning of a course when you're wondering, why am I out here? Why did I make this choice? Could I do something? It's like, oh, I'd I'd like to just go back to when things were easy, familiar, known. So, yeah, I think we're in this, this interesting moment of are we going to put our hands up and say, I can't do this let me grasp for what what for what was or okay let me move forward into this new unknown and make it the best that i can so in that 30-day Knowles course that you're talking about people kind of pushing through those feelings if you had to place us on that 30-day timeline <laughs> where would you put us <sighs> Um, I would say we're like on, uh, day four or five. (laughs) (laughs) I actually reflected on this. You're not at the, at the very beginning, whether it's like, oh my gosh, this is happening. And whether your feelings are nerves or excitement or whatnot, we are not in a solid middle where we can, we're like, okay, we've gotten systems figured out and I can like look ahead and see where, see an ending, but I can also look back and see where we started and see this growth. Instead, we're kind of on this day where like the newness has worn off and we're realizing like, oh, we're going to wake up and pack our bags and start walking just like we did yesterday and the day before and the day before that. Like, okay. Like we're like still creating this new normal but it's like, okay, well, for the here and now, I've got to still just pack my pack, make sure I'm well fed, make sure I've got water, and put one foot in front of the other. 
on that 30-day timeline, where do you think people really start to hit their stride? I would say hmm, somewhere like day 12-ish maybe is sort of the emerging of it. Mm-hmm. That, that, that it starts to be like, okay, I'm here and I'm not just always surviving every day. Um, we have had enough of a communal experience that no longer is my sense of self just tied up in what I have experienced before and sharing it. Suddenly we have this shared experience of we all walked up and over that mountain. We all slept through that rainstorm. So around day 12, hitting that groove, interestingly enough, I don't know if we'll have the same thing in our current global situation that there can also be as you get closer to the end. Sometimes there's this like, great, we're ready for the end, feeling that out. There can also be this sense of, I'm not ready to go back to that. I really like it out here. I like who I've become. I like this system of things. But then there can also be these bigger things of like, do you dream of being able to do this or um, want to um, make more of your meals and get connected to where your food came from or want to be more active in the outdoors or want to have a hard conversation with someone like you did out here. Um, And yes, maybe you're going to sit down on your couch at home and not next to a lake um, multiple miles away from the nearest place a car can get. Um, But can you find success and joy in those as well? It seems like you're describing on these courses people becoming more in touch with the basic building blocks of life. Can you describe what that looks like? Definitely on on these courses, I think it, it does strip you down to just what you need. And not only in this like begrudging, like, great, I'm surviving, but even this celebration of these small moments of things um, that along with, I've mentioned a lot of times that there can be like, like too much water, of it raining a lot on a trip. There can also be times when we've gone to the canyons of Utah, where there's not enough water and you're searching and searching. And I remember distinctly on a recent trip, it, we were coming up on 24 hours of not having found any water. We still had some with us. We weren't in dire straits, but just every moment we were <laughs> that we continued and would go up someplace and search this out and not find anything. It was like, okay, what are we going to do? And I remember even having this moment, I sat on this mesa and just needed to take a moment to myself. And yes, there there was this moment where finally someone came around and we just heard this little echo of a student who was off checking out around this corner and heard like, we thought like, did they just say water? I I think I heard someone just say water and you're just getting so excited. I even grabbed my co-instructor's like hands, like we were in some sort of like rom-com like oh it's happening maybe we're gonna do this we're gonna be okay for today and then the student came around and said like I did we found water we're good and like people were just so excited like yes we did it someone like took their shirt off and just started dancing like just in the joy of like we found water and tonight we can relax into that and celebrate and cook 
yes, all this importance of like, oh yeah, these basic needs are met. Now we can enjoy community and and each other so much more. Um, but yeah, that trip was this roller coaster because we knew that we would then start this search all over again as we had to like leave that water source and like continue that that search. What do moments like that do to you as a person? When you go through a moment like that, how does it change your outlook on life uh, as you return to your daily life? <sighs> hmm. Reflecting on how it affects in my daily life. I mean, I think in the immediate, after a course, there is this relief in some of the comforts that um, many people have in their day to day of like, oh, I just get to lay down on this mattress. I didn't have to blow it up. Um, uh, it's the temperature is very pleasant in this room as I fall asleep. Um, so I think there can be those, those immediate things. And then as I, as you keep going forward and maybe those everyday things become everyday again, and don't maybe carry that, like, I don't turn on the faucet, go like, we have water, you know, and start dancing around, (laughs) um, with with the reflection, there are places in the world where that is worthy of daily celebration and whatnot. Um, but I think it's then it's this carrying this little seed inside you of like, I know how to do hard things. And maybe I'm not going to have to exactly go out searching for water again or keep walking as the sun is setting, um, trying to find a decent place to camp. But I know I can do that. And that makes all the difference. And I have found myself in my current situation reflecting on different pieces of that, that like, I don't know when all these things that are happening around the globe are going to come to an end. And in fact, they might not in this tidy bow that I want it to. As we often say out on courses, like, okay, I can't control the weather but I can put on a rain jacket. Like I can do these things. And then the same thing with my cancer diagnosis of, yeah, it can be too much to try and think of it all at once, but it's like, okay, what can I do today to feel good? So yeah, I think that's how the, how I've carried it forward into other pieces. And I think students do too. So I wanted to speak with Jessica about more than just her work. During the pandemic, she was diagnosed with cancer. She offered to share some about how her past experiences and her work with liminal spaces has helped her navigate this challenging time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so on March 7th, I hopped on a plane in Wyoming and flew to North Carolina to visit family and do a follow-up appointment on what I thought was an o- just an ovarian cyst that had been sticking around since the holidays to see a doctor here and visit with my family. And I met with the doctor on March 10th um, as it, and he put forth as like, we need to go in and like check this out more surgically. It's still there. 
Um, we don't know what it is. Let's check it out. And at this time, I communicated with my work back at back in Wyoming at Knowles saying, and everything was still humming along. We had hundreds of students out in the field. So on March 10th had called with this news. Um, we moved forward on setting the surgery up for a week later on March 17th. And um, I'm assuming anyone listening to this can start to fill in potentially some things that were happening in the world around that time that over that next week, so many things shut down, including on March 16th, I got the call from work that they were pulling everyone out of the field, canceling courses and sending everyone home. And then I went in and had my surgery the next day and found out I had cancer. Um, yeah, it's, it was fascinating to watch this change and sort of decide like, oh my gosh, how I have to go into a hospital and get treatment while they are both, um, yeah, worried about like catching germs that may be coming there. They are preparing for things. I've had an experience of twice being at a treatment facility that I was there on their last day of operating with their normal systems, that they were shutting things down to move it over and consolidate it with other things to make room for potential coronavirus patients. So yeah, this personal health unknown has been intertwined and interwoven with this global health unknown in these uncanny, strange, sometimes you can do nothing else but laugh as it's hysterical and hilarious um, moments. Oh, sorry. I had one more thing. If you want, I also, then also this dovetailing of with Noel shutting down is I found out that, or got the call from my boss giving me the heads up that my position was going to be eliminated as they were needing to, uh, let go of people. I learned that on the same day that I met with a doctor who said that you're going to need to do chemo as well. And I was like, Oh, okay. Lot, lot happening. <laughs> Yeah, it is a lot happening. Yeah, part of why I wanted to talk with you is because it struck me that through this process, you've had a tremendous amount of resiliency and you've kind of taken all this stuff in stride. Um, I mean, there's tremendous chaos and change in the world right now and also in your own life. Um, and I'm wondering if you can share a little bit how you think that you're ability to move through this space has been affected by your work in the past, moving through spaces of transition with your students? Yeah. Well, I think personally, I definitely had this reflection on how I've certainly had emotional moments. I am not a robot and haven't had, uh, times where I have felt sad and shed tears or felt frustrated or w wanted things to be different. But I, I, there was also this resolve as I got each time that I got this bit of information, it was kind of like, okay. Um, and it wasn't worth the effort pushing back and wishing it were different or hoping it would change. It's like, okay, this is, this is the reality. Um, similar to how when I'm on a trip, there are definitely moments I'm hiking up 
a steep hill and I'm like, and I'm not quite sure if we're in the right place and all these things. And it's, I mean, have I thought about just sitting down and like giving up and being like, I'm done. Can't do this anymore. Sure. But then I'm like, I, I can't. You like have to keep going at some point, whether it's just even to get to a place where you stop for the day. Um, and I think that's where I am with all these pieces that I'm just like, I don't have the option to, to stop, um, that this cancer is here, part of my body. Actually, I hope it's not, not here anymore. And they took all of it out when they did the surgeries. And now we're doing chemo to like, make sure we clear out any other nooks and crannies it might be. Um, yeah, that, I mean, my mom will often reflect. So in, in this, I have, yeah, then have stayed here in North Carolina and am quarantining with my parents in my childhood home with the one pair of pants and the three pairs of underwear that I brought with me. And my mom often be like, oh, I know you must be frustrated being here. Um, and I know that most likely, no matter even what decisions are made out in the larger uh, world and governments, local and national, I will be just staying here to get treatment and will not be going out to catch any other, any germs in the meantime. And she'll say, like, oh, I'm so sorry. It must be frustrating to be here. And I'm like, I can have moments of it, but it's just like, this is what it is. And therefore it's not worth like pressing up against it and wishing it would change. It's like, okay, let, let me find some calm in it and make the best of what I do have. Yeah. So I don't, I don't even have quite the right word. Sometimes I sometimes laugh at it. It's just like, what? Or, uh, the ridiculousness of it. As I've said to some people, I was like, if someone put this forth as a script, like, um, this woman finds out she has cancer at the same time, the whole world can't walk within six feet of each other. Be like, what? This is no, this isn't going to work. <laughs> This is boring. Uh, and I, and <laughs> it's unrealistic. too outlandish. <laughs> yeah, it's so ridiculous. But here we are. Um, and certainly have moments where I wake up like, is this a dream? Is this happening? Oh, yeah, it is. As someone who facilitates... Um, as someone who facilitates transformational experiences for young people, and well, people really of all ages... I wanted to ask if you had any advice that you would give to our broader society as we are going through this interesting moment in our history. Oh, that feels quite heavy of like, and, and like, oh, who am I to give advice on all this stuff? I think in the here and now, I have been telling myself a lot of just taking it one day at a time. And I think that is something I have said to myself out in the field when I'm leading trips on a hard day of like, okay, can't go down this wormhole of, oh my gosh, I have 27 more days of this. Like, how, why, I'm going to get through this. And it's like, okay, just... I'm going to focus on right now 
And yeah, each day and all this, I do reflect, it can feel like a lot. The news can feel a lot. Um, and I, at least am every night in a warm bed and being like, largely I'm okay. Then I think in this, in this greater picture of where we want to go, I don't know, maybe it's just more of a hope that I do think we can think through so many of these systems that we've just been running with because it's seemingly too complicated to pause and rethink um, and how we can take care of each other and the planet. I mean, one I've been personally grappling with is in losing my job, I will lose the health insurance I had and figuring out new ways of doing that. And it just, um, each of these different systems that I've been engaging with work okay as is. And now we're having this colliding of it all in this situation. Let's rethink what's working. Again, I think on a wilderness trip, you get these times throughout a course, whether it's the end of the day or there's a bit of conflict that you just, everybody let's sit down and like, this isn't quite working. Let's see if we can do it differently. Or, okay, tomorrow is a new day that we get to try this again. What do we want to change? What do we want to keep doing? Um, yeah, I hope that is what we move forward with. Sometimes called the Amazon of Southeast Asia, the Mekong is the world's 12th longest river. As the Mekong flows through the steep, jungle-covered hills of Southeast Asia, it enters a rugged region where international borders don't hold much meaning for the indigenous people who live there. Central governments in faraway cities haven't had much power in this region until recently. The Mekong was one of the last rivers in the world to see a dam. The construction of dams on the river has been controversial in all six countries through which the river flows. As dams disrupt seasonal flows on the river and harm fish populations, local people can be led to believe that governments don't care about their livelihoods. They're trading their livelihoods for electricity to feed to large urban centers. Anna G. Stevens brings us a story from the Lower Mekong Basin, where the river flattens out as it flows through rural Thailand and Laos. The 50th anniversary of Earth Day came at an unprecedented time. A global pandemic has forced us to change the way we are living and adapting on a daily basis to protect the lives of others from an invisible threat. A half century ago, when voices of the environmental movement in the United States gained national attention, they were calling for similar action, for us to look inwards and act with intention to preserve all kinds of life for as long as possible. As more voices have entered the conversation about protecting and preserving our Earth, it has become clear that there is no permanence in the normal we know. Species die out, economies crash, sickness spreads. 
There's a telling power in how we choose to navigate these squalls and accept this temporary reality. Adaptation is written into our human history, where tragedy exists in tandem with opportunity. In the 1850s, the original inhabitants of Bontemui established a community that relied on the seasonal variation of a river's depth and discharge to meet their needs. The river rose 30 to 40 feet during the regular annual rains, inundating the land with fertile silt. When the rains stopped and water levels fell, villagers returned to the river to fish and use the nutrient-rich land to grow food. The seasonal calendar was so predictable that almost every week, villagers had a different project to focus on, starting seedlings, transplanting, casting nets, harvesting cotton, spinning thread, dyeing fabric, weaving. Every task was in sync with the natural tempo of the earth, and life was created and sustained in conjunction with the flow of the world's 12th longest river. Bantamui sits under forested hills where the Mekong snakes between the rice paddies of northeastern Thailand and the jungles of Laos. The river serves as an invisible political boundary, separating families who have settled in these two nations. A single paved road leads into the village, connecting it to the influences of technology, modernization, and retail-based economic opportunities that the urban centers of Uban and Bangkok promise. Bantamui resembles thousands of other villages found in the Mekong River Basin, which spans from the glaciers of the Tibetan Plateau in China through six countries to the South China Sea and tropical Vietnam. Clusters of mud brick and bamboo homes rest just above the river, with foot-trodden paths connecting them to one another and to the water below. Small wooden boats with outboard motors line the shores, staked to bamboo poles driven into the sand. Patches of vegetable crops grow in riverbank gardens, and animals roam untethered, occasionally shooed from doorsteps or out of gardens. When the sun is hottest, people of all ages sit and nap in the shade of banana and tamarind trees, pausing from work. The Mekong River Basin is one of the most biodiverse regions on Earth, supporting the livelihoods of over 60 million people, while also providing habitat for thousands of species of birds and mammals, nearly 20,000 different kinds of plants, and over 1,000 freshwater fish species who migrate with and against the river's currents. The basin's diverse geography, from the rocky, remote Himalayas to dense, hard-to-access jungles, explains why new species continue to be discovered and how many have rarely been seen by humans. The source of the river's rich productivity is the annual rains that come to Southeast Asia each year. Historically, these arrived predictably, and villagers in Bantamui planned their growing and harvesting seasons around them. In the dry season, they planted rice, sweet potatoes, corn, and cotton in the riverbanks. Villagers also fished during annual fish migrations, tracking populations and gaining insight into the health of the river. They emphasized knowing the names of the fish in their nets and were careful not to overfish. After the harvest, work moved to houses and communal areas where neighbors gathered to spin cotton fiber into thread for handwoven fabric and to husk rice, dry fish, and save seeds for future seasons. The river sustained this localized community where knowledge, income, Culture and traditions tied the people to the cyclical nature of the earth. The villagers in Bantamui first noticed changes in the river's predictable seasonality 20 years ago. 
their concern about global climate change and Southeast Asia's rapid urbanization began to grow. Around this time, China began constructing 11 dams on the upper Mekong to feed their city's growing demands for electricity. Lao followed suit, cutting the river's ecosystem in half with the controversial Shiaburi Dam, completed in 2018. Electricity prices and market demands determine water levels now, and the unpredictable discharge from dams can wash away riverbank crops without warning or cease altogether, leaving fields to die from thirst. Migratory fish in the river once grew to over 600 pounds, but many species are now moving towards extinction. What was once the world's largest freshwater fishery and the primary protein source for 60 million people is collapsing. Additionally, the effects of climate change have been drastically felt in the region, where water scarcity impacts vulnerable populations of humans and animals alike. With more extreme weather patterns, including stronger and longer droughts, agricultural productivity has decreased, increasing the threat and fear of food scarcity, unstable economies, and loss of essential resources. The people of Bantamui have been forced to address these concurrent issues as new ecological and geopolitical landscapes have disrupted their centuries-old way of life. But their connection as a community has not wavered. They have embraced confusion and uncertainty with resilience and concern for one another. Posa, a village elder who always has a question on his mind and a spark in his eye, characterizes his community by the way they choose to be there for one another. In Bantamui, we think of unity. We build together. We don't have fences here, so we can walk through each other's houses and yards. If people walk by, we ask if they have eaten. We think of the food resources we have. We share what we have. If my neighbor has vegetables, I can ask for some and give something else in return. People gather together when someone is sick or has died. Everyone in the community knows each other. Modern influences have inevitably found their way into Bontemui. Pipes now pump water from the river to homes, eliminating the need to haul water in buckets, and villagers use concrete to construct new houses. These changes reflect a broader, contemporary mindset focused on advancement and attainment, but they have had positive impacts on Bontemui as well. Recognizing that it is no longer feasible to focus their time, energy, and resources solely on horticulture and agriculture, villagers have shifted their roles in the community. Many, like Posa, now are educators and activists, using their local knowledge to preserve and protect riverbank communities from further development or deforestation. A few years ago, the Thai and Lao governments proposed a dam just two kilometers upstream from Ban Tamui. A dam so close would force the villagers to relocate from the land they call home. Determined to defeat the dam project, villagers conducted an impact survey in the region. They interviewed communities similar to their own about agricultural productivity and fishing practices. With their findings, Bontemui's activist group approached local and regional governmental leaders about the immense impact this dam would have on the livelihoods of thousands of residents in the region surrounding Bontemui. The dam was never built. This achievement inspired villagers to strengthen their voices in the fight against development and climate change and to invite others near and far to listen. While Bantamui moves away from agrarian-based practices and relies on more imported food than in decades past, they remain a community focused on the river. A community center overlooking the Mekong hosts classes and trainings for locals and visitors. 
domestic and international groups visit Bantumui to learn about its history and have a chance to try some of the traditional farming practices that have become all but extinct in urban areas. The walls of the community center are decorated with hand-painted images of common fish species found in the river and a large, round seasonal calendar by which Bantumui still aspires to live. Much of Bantumui's income currently comes from hosting these visitors, but the village gains more than just income from having outsiders witness their landscape and lifestyle. The visits also help to preserve the village's identity. Older generations of villagers want to pass on many of the traditions they learned from their grandparents, like how to produce cloth from raw cotton fiber, how to identify plants for natural dyes, and the proper technique for casting fishing nets. As they share these teachings with visitors, more importantly, they also educate Bontemui's youth, so younger generations will not forget the fundamental link between the river and their well-being. Learning to live with the land requires embracing adversity. The people of Bontemui have developed this skill over generations, and they have used it to be a voice for themselves and for the Mekong River ecosystem that millions of people rely upon. Ultimately, land and hand have continued to work together. Adversity pushes us into corners of our minds we rarely visit. It can be uncomfortable and unsettling. Yet, if we consider how a community like Bantumui, which lived in synchronicity with the natural rhythms of the earth, was able to overcome major disruptions that threatened its livelihood and identity, we can learn that adaptation is rooted deep within our human condition. Growth is predicated on reassessing norms, sharing stories, and wisely using the natural systems that surround us. If we can embrace these ideas, we too can find solace in the idea that it is possible to persist through the unknown. When the villagers of Bontemui were completing their research to protest the proposed dam upstream, a village member remarked, We realize the whole world faces similar issues, so it's okay for us. It might be hard to make a living, but we can keep on fighting. We have to adapt to live in this changing climate. The very life we know may become dismantled. We can continue to move with the earth and use our voices to rise. Groundwork was created by me, Jeff Wagner, with help from Anna G. Stevens. Special thanks today to Elise Guarino, Amina Simon, and Jessica Fuller. Groundwork is recorded on occupied lands of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. This podcast is released in conjunction with our email newsletter called On the Ground. Some of the stories you heard today come in written form in that email newsletter. Each issue, we focus on a different theme as we explore how climate change and culture are related. You can sign up at www.layinggroundwork.org. Thanks for listening. If you're in North America, I hope you're enjoying spring. It's probably time to go outside and plant your garden.